All right. Thank you, Alex, uh, for reading our scripture this morning. Anybody here heard a sermon on the book of Nahum? Anybody? <laughs> We're into the deep cuts here, right, in, in, the, in the minor prophets here, um, which is already a fairly obscure branch of study, but uh, we're really digging into the, the heart of our series, right into the midst of the uh, minor prophets. And um, they've, they've taught us some fairly striking things so far. I have a little list here of some of the uh, highlights here that we've gotten from uh, the minor prophets. Jonah highlights uh, the mercy of God. Uh, Amos highlights the justice of God. Uh, Hosea highlights God's Incredible love. Micah highlights uh, God's forgiveness, among other things. Zephaniah highlights that God is a God who sings over us. And as we come uh, this morning to Nahum, and both Nahum and Obadiah here, I was going to try and tackle both of those together this morning, but there's just just too much goodness in some of these books here. So I'm going to focus on Nahum, but both of them focus on God's judgment. And so we're going to get in to talk about God's judgment this morning. Exactly. I know what you woke up this morning and said, here's what I need to hear at church this morning. A little more of God's judgment. Let's just, come on, bring it on, Mike. Bring some, bring some judgment here. Uh, just for a little background and a little context, 140 years earlier, uh, if you followed our series, the very first one we tackled, the prophet Jonah gave God's message of mercy in response to Assyria's repentance. But the Assyrians have returned to their old ways, and Nahum now, many generations later, comes with God's message of judgment. After the generation that repented during the time of Jonah, uh, they returned to world power status once again, dominated the ancient Near East with an unprecedented campaign of intimidation, brutality, violence, and oppression. Uh, You get a little flavor of this in 2 Kings 18, just the kind of work they were trying to do. I mean, this is like modern day terrorism, like war crimes. These are the kind of things that Assyria was perpetrating on all the nations in the world. They boasted of skinning their captives alive, gross, right? Cutting off hands and feet, making piles of human heads, impaling people on stakes. This is the kind of people that the Assyrians uh, were. One of the most brutal empires in human history, and God's people, of course, along with all the other nations, suffered under their cruel oppression. The northern kingdom was totally decimated uh, by the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom by this point was reduced to a petty vassal state. Assyria was the great world power, and they uh, put everyone else under their thumb. Surely God's people wondered where God was in all of this judgment, right? And the prophet Nahum comes uh, to announce that enough is enough. God is merciful and he is slow to anger, but he is also perfectly just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. So Nahum prophesies a serious downfall, which will happen uh, in 612 BC by the Babylonians. Uh, Probably the closest parallel in recent memory for us would be the Allied struggle against the Nazis in World War II. Uh, While we personally, I think, struggle to wrap our minds around what it would be like to live under the threat of terror and evil, our grandparents, or for some of you, I guess your (laughs) great-grandparents, fought just such an enemy, right? In World War II, as World War II um, came to, or I say World War II was probably the last great war, right, where it felt like a real struggle between good and evil, right? The Nazis, Adolf Hitler, were not only responsible for killing millions of soldiers on the battlefield, but also millions more civilians, and then millions of Jews and others killed in Hitler's 
death camps, right? Hitler was one of the great villains of the 20th century and human history. When Hitler was defeated, there was dancing in the streets and people kissing random strangers all around the world. It was an incredible celebration. I have just a little picture up here of just everyone uh, just celebrating in the streets, you know, packing out. Uh, This is all the major cities of the free world celebrating when Hitler was defeated, when this evil empire that had killed millions of people in concentration camps was finally brought down. There was dancing in the streets, celebration. People were kissing random strangers. It was a massive celebration on a scale that we probably struggle to wrap our minds around today, as divided as we are in our culture today and as polarized as we are. Uh, But this picture here, I think, is perhaps maybe the closest we can get to what's happening in the book of Nahum. God promised to rescue his people from the evil empire of Assyria. And when that happens, there is going to be incredible celebration in the streets. And so my uh, big idea for this morning is that God's judgment on the Assyrians is good news for his people. God's judgment on the Assyrians is good news for his people. And uh, the way I want to unpack that this morning is first by looking at God's passion for judgment. Um, God's passion for judgment is going to lead to uh, God's judgment on the Assyrians, and then God's judgment on the Assyrians is in turn going to be good news for God's people. And my aim uh, for this morning's sermon is that in a world filled with evil and injustice, we would take heart that God will ultimately judge the world with perfect judgment. And so let's pray as we dive in this morning. Father, we don't have to look too far uh, around us to see evil and injustice in our world. Just a few weeks back, uh, the world watched in horror as Hamas terrorists massacred 1,300 civilians, many of them in their own homes, just going about their daily lives. And now as that that, uh, conflict continues, we've seen many uh, Palestinian civilians killed, and we just look across the the way to Ukraine and look at all the tens of thousands, 10,000 people already killed in that conflict, God. And and we just grieve uh, the world around us, the brokenness, the pain, uh, the suffering that, that so many people in our world experience every day, God. And yet we do more than grieve, God. We long for your justice to come in these atrocities, God, in these international conflicts. We long for your peace. And so with the message of Nahum this morning, uh, uh, offer us great hope and comfort uh, that you are the God uh, that not only meets us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the evil and justice around us, but you are the God that ultimately will bring your perfect peace and perfect justice to this world. And so uh, we pray uh, all of these things in your name, pray that you'd come uh, by your spirit and speak to your people. Bring the comfort that you want to bring through this beautiful book of Nahum. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, if you're following along in Nahum, we're going to start this morning with God's passion for justice. Uh, like all the prophets, Nahum is a, a passionate prophet. There, there are some very intense messages in this book, and you don't have to go far to find them. The opening lines of Nahum, um, which were read in our scripture reading, present an intense portrait of God as a warrior, right? Nahum brings us face to face with God's response to evil and injustice 
in the world. God is not apathetic. He's not indifferent to the evil around us. He is very angry. And in this case, in the book of Nahum with the Assyrians, right? They have been an instrument of God's judgment, but they have perpetrated grave injustices and war crimes that can only be described as pure evil. And as is typical of the prophet, Nahum uses strong language, right? God is jealous. God is avenging. God is wrathful. And you know, those are not necessarily terms we often think about as things that are part of God's character and God's nature, uh, but Nahum brings them to our attention. And this doesn't mean, of course, that God harbors petty human jealousy, right? That he's, you know, in some kind of a petty and vindictive sort of way. But when the people he loves deeply are hurt, he is angry about it in the same way you would be angry if someone abused one of your little children or your spouse or someone in your immediate family, right? God's jealousy comes out of the fact that he is intensely protective of those he loves, of the people that he um, has chosen as his people. And he promises, right, that evildoers will pay for what they have done. He will take decisive action to wipe out those who have perpetrated this great evil and injustice. Nam gives us uh, a summary, uh, maybe, of God's name, one of the great summaries of God's name in uh, Exodus 35, 6 through 7. And so we'll see in verse 3, Nahum simply says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but the Lord and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so not in... So God's anger, his wrath, his, his vengeance is measured, right? He's not uh, trigger happy. Um, he's deliberate. He's purposeful in his judgment. His anger is always proportionate um, response to the guilty parties. Um, but these, these words here that, that uh, Nahum wants to give us, right? God is slow to anger, but he will not clear the guilty, right? He's a loving God. He's gracious. He's compassionate. We know all these things. But at the end of the day, God cannot allow evil and injustice to stand in the world. We see this in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which Nahum is referring to, and we see this in the summary here in verse 3 of Nahum. And once his anger against evil and injustice is stirred up, the results in this book are awe-inspiring. If you read through in 4 through 6, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blooms of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. This is God when he comes to judge the world, right? The sea representing the chaos in the ancient Near East. Uh, one of the things that God's people feared the most, right, is just dried up. Like he just totally incinerates the sea, the mountains, the most unmovable thing in the world, right? If you think of the Rockies, you think of these gigantic mountains, you know, they're quaking before him. Even the rocks, right, are splitting uh, before his presence. And while God is angry, at evil and injustice, right? And he's coming in judgment to judge the world. Um, verse 7 reminds us that he's still good, right? He is a stronghold for those who take refuge in him. His anger isn't indiscriminate. Those who take refuge in him are perfectly safe. His anger is perfectly targeted at evildoers. There's no collateral damage in God's judgment, right? When God judges the world, right? He is very careful to watch over those that are 
his own. But make no mistake, verse 8 tells us that he will utterly eradicate evil and injustice. Like the flood in Genesis 6, God will sweep away his enemies. And as modern uh, Americans, I think we sometimes cringe at these depictions of God because we don't personally feel the need for his justice, right? The vision of God as a mighty warrior striding across the world to bring this colossal judgment, right? It's not necessarily something we need because we're not primarily in a place where we're oppressed. You know, we're, we have not suffered grave, you know, oppression and evil and injustice at the hands of perpetrators. And so we don't feel the need for the Lord to come down and, and bring righteousness and justice and bring his peace to the world. But we have to remember that if God turned a blind eye to injustice, there'd be no hope for those living in the grip of it, those living in countries, you know, torn up by civil war, uh, where justice is not accessible, right? Where, where terrorist actions have just taken place. You know, if you live in one of those places, right, the picture of God as judge of all the world who will do what is right is something that people in those places long for. They, they resonate with. And of course, if God won't judge evil, who will, right? There are perhaps few people who understood this better than uh, Miroslav Volf. Uh, Volf is uh, a theologian at Yale Divinity School. I uh, grew up in the former communist uh, uh, country of Yugoslavia, Yugoslavia, which saw extensive ethnic genocide throughout the 90s. Um, Wolf talks about the only way out of the cycle of violence he experienced in his own country. And, and he said this, I thought this was so profound and so helpful for us. Uh, he said this in his uh, famous book, Exclusion and Embrace, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not take a, make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Wolf is saying that the only way to stop people who are stuck in a death spiral of violence is to teach them that God will judge with perfect judgment so they don't have to personally retaliate. Right? Teaching people that God is loving, tolerant, and non-judgmental doesn't help someone whose family was just butchered before your eyes. Right? Your human instincts, your demand justice, demand retaliation, demand vengeance, the only way outside of that spiral of violence um, that continues in so many parts of the world. We, we just have to look at, at Israel and Palestine to see that, that spiral of violence continuing and continuing as it has for so many hundreds of years. It's God's perfect justice that allows us to break that cycle finally of violence, offer grace and forgiveness into situations that seem utterly irreconcilable. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 19 through 21. He says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if you're any hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you'll heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, 
Many would say the God of the Old Testament is a wrathful. He's an angry God. Just read Nahum. He's angry, he's vengeful, he's jealous. And then the New Testament, you know, he's just a very sweet, loving, you know, paternal grandfather kind of God. Not what Paul is saying here. No, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Same message in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the fact that God will judge the world with perfect judgment that allows us to show restraint, to show grace, to show mercy, because we know, no, Evil deed will go unpunished. Every human being will have to stand before the God of the universe to give an account. God's passion for justice so clearly displayed in these opening verses leads to the prophecy of God's judgment against Assyria. Because God loves his people, because they have been the victims of injustice and evil, uh, war crimes that are unspeakable, God is going to bring judgment on their enemies. And that's really the heart of the book of Nahum, is that judgment unfolding. Right back in the time you know, of Jonah, Assyria repented from their evil deeds, but here they've returned to their old ways. In fact, the very concluding verse of Nahum chapter 3, verse 19, says this, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil, right? This is Assyria. This is who they are. They have become into a position where, where they can be described, right? Their conduct can be described as unceasing evil. They've refused to turn from it. So judgment is about to fall from God. And so... As this book unfolds, I'm not going to be able to unpack all of it. I want to just sketch it for you as it unpacks here. We see in chapter 1, verse 8, already the judgment that's going to come on a colossal universal scale. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. So we see already God is going to make a complete end of the Assyrians. And then as this book unfolds in chapter 1, verse 11 through 15, there's a specific judgment against Assyria's king. And so in verse 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though you are full of strength and many, they will will be cut down and pass away. Though I've afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you. I will burst your bonds asunder. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved images and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. And then finally at the end of verse 15, and never again shall the worthless pass through it. He is utterly cut off. So there's a judgment prophesied against the king of Assyria in verses 11 through 15. And then God will bring judgment on the capital city of Assyria, the city of Nineveh. We see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. There is this battle sequence of enemy troops breaking through the city of Nineveh, chariots rolling through the streets, bodies piling up in the street. I won't go through it in all the gory graphic detail, but essentially Nahum just rolls out what it's going to look like when the enemies overwhelm the defenses of Nineveh, when all of the violence that they have perpetuated is going to return on their own heads and their city is going to be brought down. As you get into chapter 3, God announces their utter defeat and humiliation, right? It, it goes on to describe the destruction and violence, but then uh, God's judgment, and it's a poetic judgment, right? The violence that they have perpetuated is going to return on their own heads, right? They're going to get 
what they deserve, what they have personally perpetrated. And so as you come to the end of chapter 3, right, Nineveh is cast down. Like Thebes in Egypt, uh, this mighty city that at this, the time of this prophecy, seemed utterly indestructible, utterly untouchable, is finally going to crash down. The point of this book is that no one will ultimately escape God's perfect judgment. Even the most affluent and powerful will have to stand before God to answer for him. This is the message Adolf Hitler had to confront before committing suicide in his bunker. This is the message every tyrant, dictator, and bully carefully needs to consider. Uh, I love how Eric Tully said this in his commentary. He said, in this event, we'll point this destruction of Nineveh, this event will point to even better news for all God's people of all God's time. There is a God who sees the injustice in the world, and he will act to ensure that right is done. This event will point to even better news for all people of all times. There is a God who sees the injustice in the world, and he will act to ensure that right is done. And so I want to look finally here after the judgment, and you can read through the book to watch it kind of play out and unfold. I have time to do full justice to the, to the poetic scope of the destruction and chaos that Nahum uh, gives for us. Uh, but I want you to see is that there's good news for God's people in this message of judgment and destruction. The book ends, if you flip to chapter 3, uh, the book ends uh, in, in verse, chapter 3, verse 19. All those who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Right At the end of the book, as destruction and doom is prophesied, um, as the Assyrians are brought down, what's the response here? We see again there's cheering, there's clapping, there's celebrating in the streets, right? This is a public celebration, dancing in the streets from Egypt to Israel, from the Black Sea to Babylon, from the Mediterranean to the Persian Gulf, because Assyria's reign of terror has finally come to an end. It's finally been defeated, and the nations are rejoicing. They're clapping. They're celebrating God's justice on one of the most oppressive and cruel empires to ever live on the face of the earth. Nahum even goes as far as to say that this victory over Assyria is good news, like Isaiah's good news of victory over the Babylonians even further in the future. Uh, notice what he says here. In, uh, and this is, I have the two side by side, these two texts up there for you. Yeah, Nahum 1.15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, though, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Nahum is actually quoting Isaiah, who had prophesied during the time of Micah, uh, several, four generations before, and he's quoting uh, Isaiah to talk about good news of God's peace and God's reign on the world. Here's what Isaiah said in full in Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What Nahum wants God's people under the thumb of the Assyrians to see is that God will reign over all of his enemies and establish his perfect peace. He will bring his salvation and good news of 
his rescue to his people. For Nahum, Assyria is exhibit A of God's perfect justice and perfect peace coming to his people. For Isaiah, Babylon is next, right? Babylon will be defeated and God will bring his perfect peace. But in the meantime, chapter 1, verse 7, tells us that God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. For those under the thumb of evil and injustice, God is a fortress. God is a refuge. And so while this book is one of the most dramatic messages of judgment, it's also a message of comfort to God's people because they're going to be the recipients of God's rescue and God's deliverance. Nahum's name actually means comfort or compassion. God is comforting his people with the reality that he will come to their rescue. He will bring his peace into their lives. They can take refuge in him. They can find him to be a strong tower, a fortress uh, in the midst of that. And so as we come in the midst of our lives and the challenges, the difficulties, the struggles, uh, right? God invites us, God beckons us to find our refuge in him. People living amidst the atrocities that we've seen in, in Israel, right? In Ukraine right? are invited to find their refuge in God, for him to be their strong tower, to him, for them to be a fortress as they wait for God's ultimate justice to come. God's judgment is always good news to his persecuted people, right? He is a refuge in times of evil and injustice, and he will ultimately judge all evil and injustice in the world. Now, we know in hindsight that the defeat of the Assyrians uh, would happen in 621. Their empire would be destroyed, uh, seemingly at the height of their power, right? They just collapsed. The Babylonians swept in, and they're just another footnote in history, right? Their, their city is all ruins. They haven't even exca- excavated Nineveh, uh, this great city, one of the great powers of the ancient world. Uh, but its, its demise uh, happened, but a mere 25 years later, after Israel had been freed from the Assyrians, the Babylonian Empire arose and ended up putting their, uh, con- their conquest over the Israelites. And God would send his people ultimately into exile in Babylon, the peace that they were longing for, that good news of peace, the good news of God's reign, that good news of salvation would seem to fade into the rearview mirror as they headed off into Captivity and God's people would live under the thumb of foreign nations for 400 more years. When would the good news of God's reign of peace finally be established for good? This is why Jesus' sermon in Luke 4 16 through 21 in the synagogue of his hometown in Nazareth was so explosive. Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah 60, opened the scroll of Isaiah 64 and read these words The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying that the good news of God's long-awaited reign of peace prophesied by Nahum and Isaiah was finally here. Uh, But Jesus came to deal, of course, with even greater enemies than Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, or Rome. He came to set his people free 
uh, from the greater enemies of sin and death and Satan. Jesus came to establish peace first with God. We see in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Eric Tully says that he says, The good news is that on the cross, Jesus absorbed God's full wrath on behalf of anyone who will take refuge in him. Right, The message of God's judgment and wrath in Nahum is not a message that we need to face as God's enemies. We can accept that we can escape God's wrath as we become his friends, as we receive his grace and his mercy, as we have peace with God. Jesus has taken that wrath in our place so that we receive his forgiveness and his grace. We're now in a right relationship with God and don't stand under that judgment. But Jesus did more than to just come and create peace between us and God. Jesus came to establish peace between Jews and Gentiles. We see in Ephesians 2, 13 through 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, free himself as our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Right? Right? Jesus came to establish peace between different nations and peoples and ethnicities so that we can all gather together as one people, the people of God. That is an incredible hope for a world that is so torn by ethnic violence and racism and so many of those things. God has come to bring peace among us. And Jesus came ultimately to establish peace in the whole cosmos. Colossians 1.20 says it this way, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, Paul is saying that God is putting everything in this broken and fallen world back together through Jesus, and he's starting with us, right? This whole world is ultimately going to be restored to God's beautiful and good design. God will judge evil, God will eradicate it, but ultimately he will restore everything to his good design. And we get to spread that message, that good news to the people around us. In Romans 10, Paul picks up the language of Isaiah and Nahum to encourage us to spread this good news of peace. And so I have a little slide up there, I think, with all three of those messages there, Nahum 1.15 uh, and Isaiah 52.7 and then Romans 10, 14 through 15. Listen to what Paul says as he's picking up on this good news of this peace that God is bringing to the world. How, will they, how then will they call on him? And this is Jesus, whom they have not believed in. How are they to believe in him? whom they have not, have they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the, pe- are the feet of those who preach good news. You see, this message is not just a message in the New Testament. It's God's comprehensive message of world peace that he has promised all the way back in the prophets he's fulfilling in Jesus and that he is very much starting in our hearts, right? Bringing his peace to bear in our hearts to have his peace rule in our hearts, as Paul tells us in Colossians. Uh, And that peace is to spread, right? From our lives into our relationships, into our families, into our cities, into our world, till ultimately God's peace will rest over the entire world that he's created. That is the incredibly 
good news, right, that Nahum has. That's the comfort that God has, despite all the pain and suffering uh, that are so much a part of our human experience. God has ultimately got a greater plan for ultimate world peace. It's in Nahum, it's in Isaiah, and ultimately sees this deepest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And of course, as we look to the final chapters of the Bible, we see in Revelations 21 and 22, that, that vision coming to fruition uh, finally. And so what would it look like to have Nahum's message burning in our hearts this week here? First, I would suggest, right, we don't need to take revenge, right? Because God will judge the world with perfect judgment. This bracing message of judgment in the minor prophets helps us refrain from retaliation to break the vicious cycles of violence in our world and in our lives, right? We don't always have to retaliate. We don't always have to respond. We don't always have to get even with each other, right? And we feel that uh, in our, the petty ways in our own little relationships or coworkers or friends or, or neighbors, right? right? The gospel breaks down these cycles of violence, the need for retaliation, the need for violence, the need for this tit-for-tat relationship. God will judge perfectly. We don't have to execute it. We don't have to hold people to the fire, right? right? God is going to do that. We can relax a little bit. We don't have to retaliate. We don't have to take vengeance in our lives. Second, we take refuge in God as our stronghold in the midst of evil and injustice, right? As well as our own sins and our own struggles, right? As we suffer, as we struggle, uh, as we feel the unfairness of life in the fallen world, right? We, we take refuge in God instead of just lashing out as others. You know, what Nahum wants us to do is to find comfort and God's compassion in the midst of the pain and the suffering we feel. God wants us to take the pain that we feel and bring it to him instead of just lashing out to other people or self-medicating with alcohol or television or food. Um, There's a different way to do life offered to us. And Nahum 1.7 is just a beautiful picture of God being our refuge, God being our fortress, God being our oasis where we find peace in the midst of the storms that rage around us. What, what a beautiful invitation we have here in Nahum in the midst of all this injustice, pain, and evil, right, to see God as our great refuge. And of course, in Christ, Jesus has become our ultimate refuge from the storms of all of, all of life around us. And then finally, of course, we're a church, and we get to share this good news, right? As we experience the peace that Jesus brings, the refuge that he brings, uh, we get to share it to people around us, right? How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, right? That, that's the kind of people we're supposed to be, good news people, people who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. I don't think that could be highlighted, underlined, and underscored. I feel like we should have it on the wall or something, your God reigns. <laughs> you know, despite the Fox News headlines or CNN headlines or MSNBC, uh, God reigns should be the banner over our lives, right? Over our, all the insecurities, all the uncertainties in our world. Your God reigns. Redemption City Church. You don't have to be anxious, right? You, you don't have to be angry. You don't have to lash out at people. You don't have to be insecure. You don't have to make decisions out of fear because the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? Your God reigns, Redemption City Church, and you get to stand in that truth and that reality, and you get to share that 
with the people around you who are freaking out for various reasons, who are anxious, who are fearful, who are struggling, who see the chaos around them and don't quite know what to do with it. God is putting everything, and I mean everything, in this broken and fallen world back together through Jesus, and he's starting with us. That's beautiful good news that we have. We started um, this morning with the end of World War II and people dancing and kissing in the streets after the Nazis were defeated. I've got another picture maybe that captures a little bit more of that celebration. Just see the radiance on these people's face, the joy, the exuberance, the, the celebration, right? This is where I want to end this morning with good news that God is the divine warrior who judges evil with perfect justice, who will bring Your own 